The text from my message is that paragraph that we read from Ephesians together, particularly its last three verses. I have an experience that is like the experience of some of you. Some of you grew up in good Christian homes where the things of Christ were cherished and talked about. and You have no memory of the first time that you heard those things because you simply grew up with them. But some of us weren't so fortunate. Some of us grew up in good homes but not Christian homes. And so that time in life when we first heard the gospel with understanding stands out like a glowing light in the darkness of our memories. I remember when I first became aware of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross for me. The people who were teaching me at that time emphasized the importance of committing scripture to memory. I memorized some passages of scripture at the time that I remember to this day. I find that each one of them is like a tiny volume that sits on a shelf in my mind. And at a time of need, the Holy Spirit can pull it off the shelf and open it and say, remember this. And the lights come on and there's peace where once perhaps there was not. But some of those basic verses that I memorized and perhaps you did too, fit together into a chain, a kind of logical order that says much to us about the gospel and the faith that save us. I'm going to refer to these without reference because I don't want to interrupt the sequence. If you're interested in where they are, if you don't know, I'd be glad to tell you after the service. But in the Bible, we read that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son with the result that each one who believes in him will not perish but has everlasting life. He was in the world and the world was created by him, but the world didn't recognize him. He came into his own people, but his own people refused to receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to be the children of God. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. These are things that we believe and we declare as a church. These are truths that we celebrate, especially on these Sundays when we gather for worship around the Lord's table to remember the love of God, the Father who drew up the plan for our salvation, to remember the perfect obedience of God the Son who carried out his part of that plan with perfection, and to remember the work of God the Spirit who takes these things of Christ and sovereignly, certainly applies them to our hearts and souls. And all of this is encapsulated in these few words, by faith you have been saved, through faith. The larger context in which these words appear took on a special significance to me many years after my conversion. Early in my walk with Christ, I loved the testimony of Scripture that by faith are you saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. But 
Much later than they should have, the importance of the words that immediately follow began to occur to me. We're referring to the grace and the faith that save us. Paul said, and this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This was a part of an awakening in my life, a kind of theological rebirth in which I was led by the scriptures to see salvation in a new and a much clearer way. For years, I had been aware of traditional Presbyterian theology. It's known as Calvinism. It's called Reformed theology. It's referred to as the Reformed faith. And at its heart are those doctrines symbolized by the letters of the word tulip. Some call these the doctrines of grace. When I became the pastor of this church, I rejected most of those doctrines. I argued against them. I was very close to despising them. And although they stand at the very heart of historic Presbyterian theology, I was free to ignore them because the denomination of which we were a part at the time had virtually no theological standards. When I, as an outsider, was examined on the floor of our old presbytery, I was just asked two questions. One of those questions was, do you understand the difference between congregational and Presbyterian church government? And the other was, do you believe in the Trinity? And when I answered that question in the affirmative, there was no follow-up question about how I interpret the Trinity, how I explain the Trinity, how the doctrine of the Trinity relates to the person and ultimately to the work of Jesus Christ. And in the years that followed in that fellowship, I became increasingly aware that most of the ideas traditionally associated not just with Presbyterian theology, but with Christian beliefs were openly challenged and questioned in that body. In fact, there were ministers who went so far as to deny the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so my denying these doctrines of grace did not make me an oddball in that fellowship, but rather put me in its mainstream. But all of that changed in 1980. Many of you will remember in that year, this church voted to sever its ties with that denomination, primarily for theological reasons. And that led immediately to a search for a new denominational affiliation. I trust that you know that any Bible-believing group of Presbyterian churches, and we would have joined no other, would require of me and the elders of this church not merely an acquaintance with the details of historic Presbyterian theology, but a commitment to that theology. And as you can imagine, I was in a spot because I was now decided, I was in a spot where I had to decide issues that before I had the liberty to ignore altogether. And during this time of wrestling with these doctrines of grace, I was in my devotions working my way through the book of Ephesians. And I came to this second chapter. I often wonder with amusement how I made my way through the first chapter. Because if you're familiar with Ephesians, you know the first chapter is loaded with Calvinistic doctrine. But somehow I tipped through that, through that minefield just fine and came to the second chapter. But when I opened my Bible to the second chapter and began to read, something leapt off the page and hit me hard, right in the middle of my mind. Because here Paul wrote to Christian people, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. If you wrestle 
with these doctrines I once wrestled with, I urge you to consider as honestly as you are able the import of those words of Paul in Ephesians 2.1. Up to that point in my life, almost everything that I had heard, everything that I had taken seriously, everything that I believed about the gospel describes salvation as something that God offers to people who then have the responsibility to decide how to respond to his offer of mercy and clemency and are then held eternally accountable for the choices that they make. And over and over in my Christian life, I had heard certain verses of Scripture cited in that context. John 3.16, whoever chooses to believe in Jesus will not perish but has eternal life. Jesus says, ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. In Matthew 5, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In Romans 10, Paul said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And he said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in Revelation 3, Jesus is quoted as having said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, then I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The individual and the combined thrust of these verses is obvious. God has laid the foundation for the city of eternal hope and then invites people to enter. We then have to decide what to do with this gracious invitation. We can believe or not. We can ask or seek or knock or call or hunger or thirst or not. If we choose to respond positively, then we're saved. If we choose to reject or ignore God's offer, then we remain forever lost. The offer is his. The choice is ours. So it seems from a selective reading of the scriptures, and so it seemed to me until I stumbled upon the first verse of Ephesians 2, which says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. As the meaning of these words began to soak in, the defensive walls that I had erected against the core doctrines of our heritage began to crumble. The apostle claims that before we turned to Christ in repentance and faith, we were dead. And all of a sudden it occurred to me that dead people don't believe. Dead people don't ask or seek or knock or call or hunger or thirst. They don't do anything. They just lie there. They can't do anything unless and until they're made alive. And that being alive, being made alive, is what theologians call regeneration. Commonly, we call it the new birth. And spiritually and scripturally and logical, it is the first thing that happens to us in our experience with the grace of God. Only after God has made us forever alive... Are we able to hear and believe the things that we hear about Christ and his finished work on the cross? Only after we have been made alive 
Do our consciences become aware of our sin in prompt, tearful prayers of confession from our lips? Only after God has made us alive do our minds begin to hunger for his truth and our hearts long for righteousness. Without the new birth, we would never ask or seek or knock. After the new birth, we desire to do nothing other. And all of a sudden it came crystal clear to me that John Calvin and the Presbyterians were right after all. I remember this time in my life with both embarrassment and joy. Embarrassment because these things are now so clear in the Bible, I'm disappointed with myself that I didn't see them long before. Joy because this time and this enormous sea change in my understanding of salvation stands as evidence to me that I really do believe the Bible. You've heard me say that one of the ways in which we know that our claim to believe the Bible is much more than just religious profession or window dressing in our lives, is to be able to point the times in our lives when God has used his word to force us to change something about ourselves. A change in our thinking, a change in our values, a change in our lifestyles. The Bible forced me to make a radical change in my thinking about something essential to our faith, and I praise God for that. These verses in Ephesians 2 are all about God's salvation. Here we learn why we need to be saved. Here we're reminded of the means of that salvation. And here we are given the reason that God has chosen to make us his own. The Bible declares that salvation is necessary because of human sin. In the Psalms, David said, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men, to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And Paul describes our condition before Christ became real and precious to us as being dead in trespasses and sins. And later in the same chapter, he says that we were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Our sin and the dullness of heart and the blindness of man, mind and the alienation from God that it causes are what make salvation necessary. If God did not act on our behalf, then we would remain forever in that lost and dead state. And here Paul says that the means of salvation are the grace of God and the faith that he prompts within us. The grace of God and the love of God are often confused. And in fact, we hear people use the phrases interchangeably. They're related, but they are not the same. Love is an attribute of God's nature. John writes in 1 John that God is love. It is this attribute of God that causes him to treat all people in general more kindly and more generously than they deserve. To all people everywhere, God reveals himself in the mystery of creation and sends his spirit to trouble their consciences. Jesus said of his Father in heaven, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It is the love of God that delayed judgment in Noah's day. 
It was the love of God that caused him to commission prophets to warn his people Israel of the consequences of their ongoing disobedience. And it is the love of God that allows history to continue in our time, despite the mass demonstrations of dishonor toward him and toward his son Jesus. The grace of God, on the other hand, is not so much an attribute of God as a choice that God makes. God dispenses certain of his blessings in ways that seem to us to be arbitrary, if not unfair. You remember that the son who stayed home resented the lavish banquet prepared for his prodigal brother who had just returned? You remember the workers had toiled all day long in a farmer's field, complained that those who had worked for just an hour or so were paid the same money. To those who question his fairness, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Paul says that we're saved by grace, which means that God acted unilaterally and arbitrarily when he chose to apply the benefits of Christ's death to us to fill us with his spirit, to forgive our sins, to adopt us as his children. To his disciples, Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. It was God in grace who chose us and his spirit who caused us to believe in the things that we heard about Christ. Thus, of the faith that saves us, Paul said, and this, not of yourselves, It is the gift of God. When we in the Reformed tradition say that we're saved by grace, we mean much more than it is the grace of God that prompts him to offer salvation to all. We mean literally that it is grace that saves us. We need to be saved because we're lost. The sole means of salvation, our first grace and then faith. And this passage declares the reason that God saves us. In verse 10, we read, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by good works, Paul says, but we are saved for good works. What are these good works? You and I are aware that in the history of the church and its life today that Some are called by Christ to carry the gospel out into the world to those who have never heard, sometimes to be met with conspicuous success, sometimes with hostility and even death. Others are called to declare the Christian faith from the pulpits of churches and to teach it in their classrooms. There are those who are gifted and called by God to share the gospel with non-believers, whether in mass meetings or in a one-on-one basis. Some are led to lead the church as its elders, to serve the church as its deacons, to sing in its choir, to care for its young, to direct its hospitality toward those who are new or needy. But these are the kinds of things when we think of, when we think of good works. We see ourselves perhaps as the next Billy Graham or the next Mother Teresa or the next Bill Bright doing things for Christ in the world that are noticed even in the secular press and reported with honor. The specific callings of Christ are many. And knowing that requires every Christian to take a careful look at his own suite of gifts 
and to pray that God might lead him into that form of service prepared beforehand that he should walk in it. But whatever our specific calling might be, there's another far more basic kind of good work that we need to master before we're ready to climb to higher planes of Christian service. Our first calling is to self-reformation. The first good works that we are to do are those that contribute to our individual growth in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. A woman who has been a Christian for some time finds that she's becoming more concerned about the weight of her soul than the weight of her body. This is a good work. A Christian man has been convicted about a certain part of his life and is trying to discipline himself to look away when a pretty girl wearing a short skirt sits down. This is a good work. A teenager has just become a believer and feels the need to read from the Bible and to pray every night before he or she goes to sleep. This is a good work. These efforts to curb the appetites of the flesh to bring God and his word into more and more of our lives, to shift our thinking from the things of the earth to the things of heaven. Each one of these is one of those good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And only after we have begun to master the old man who was in us, only after we've made progress toward a richer understanding of the faith that saves us, only after our lives have begun to conform to the high standards of Christ himself, are we ready to pursue the other good works to which God summons us. God has saved our souls from their lost and dead condition. Grace and faith are the means by which that salvation is channeled to us. And the reason that God has done these things is that we might live lives that are pleasing and useful to him. Every day we live as Christians. Every Sunday we gather as Christians to worship God. And particularly on these communion Sundays, we have to remember the enormous cost to God of the salvation he freely offers to us. Today in our worship, we stand in awe before the cross knowing but scarcely believing that its victim is none other than God himself, God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, and that the penalty that he paid was not his but ours. Today in our worship, we kneel before the cross, swept by abject humility, unspeakable prayers of contrition and gratitude in our hearts and upon our lips. Today in our worship, we commit ourselves afresh to live and to walk in the shadow of the cross, always remembering the sweetness of the life we have in Christ, always thankful for its grand and awful cost, never forgetting the obligations of praise and service that now are ours. Let us pray. Our Father, there is no more somber and no more glorious time for a Christian people to come together to sing your praises than on these Sundays when the cross is deliberately held high before us and we remember the Lord's death until he comes. We pray that your spirit might move among us, convicting us and assuring us simultaneously of your great mercy shedding light on those parts of our lives that stand most in need of attention, 
directing our steps in the way that you would have us go. We pray in Jesus' name.